What's up? And welcome to Espresso with Erin and Sarit, the show where you go to gain the confidence and self-empowerment that you need to live your best and most authentic life. Tough love conversations to reveal the simple truths that will transform your relationships, your body, and your bank account. We are your hosts. I'm Erin. And I'm Sarit. And we are on a mission to transform the lives of millions through the same fitness, nutrition, lifestyle, and financial habits that have transformed ours. Good Friday, guys. That was good. That was good. That was really good. And welcome to our show. You guys, Fridays are guest interview days. So where's our guest? Um... So before we get this party started, we're just going to do a quick intro. Today's conversation is going to be absolute fire. Um, We know that this is a conversation that's really near and dear to what this community is all about, to, you know, like a lot of the things that we teach. And we're just so excited to share these teachings with you guys today. So you guys, today we'll be having the pleasure of hosting Dr. Greg. And Greg, if I'm butchering your last name, you'll have to call me out Greg, about it after. Greg, do um, <laughs> So you guys, Dr. Greg Prudhomme is a mental uh, performance coach, a professor of sports psychology, and an NCAA Division I head tennis coach. He currently works with world-ranked professional athletes, Division one college athletes, coaches, and entrepreneurs. You guys, in his free time, Greg and his wife enjoy traveling, riding their horses, and playing tennis on their private court. And because you're a tennis player as well, I feel like we're sharing an even, an even deeper bond. And today we're going to be talking about all things mindset when it comes to performance. Dr. Greg, thank you for joining us today. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure and honor. Hey, it's it's so great having you here. And I know that today's conversation is going to be deep. But since this show is called Espresso with Anne and Suri, I must ask you, are you a coffee drinker? Hmm. Let me think. <laughs> there it is. All right. Cheers to that. On occasion, my daughter works for Nespresso at the fashion square mall in Scottsdale. And so like my wife and I and the rest of the family, we are hooked up when it comes to that. To Nespresso. We love Nespresso too. It's in here. Nice. Okay. I'll have to bring some. I'm coming to Florida in two weeks. So I'll have to bring a few sleeves, but my daughter's so cute. We were in a beach house in San Diego a couple weeks back. And what did she bust out of her little shoulder bag is a portable Nespresso machine to take on the road. So she had us wow. all. Set up. So, yes, I enjoy my coffee and espresso and especially Nespresso. That's amazing. Love that. Love that. Um, so you're located in Arizona. You guys, you know that we love to keep it like very much so in the family. So if you're watching this live, do us a favor and please drop in the comments and tell us. Where are you from? Where are you representing? So that Dr. Greg can know. Okay, so you got to tell me, how do you pronounce your last name? You guys had it right. It's Prudhomme. Prudhomme? Prudhomme, yeah. Yeah, from my, from my great-grandfather's French side, Monsieur Prudhomme. Ooh. Ooh. 
Fancy like Nespresso, I love it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you've been an athlete your entire life. And, you know, what I'm curious to find out is how did you go from being an athlete to being a performance coach? Yes, that's a that's a great question. And I I'm not very big. I'm not super tall. I'm not super muscly. After following you guys, though, I think I'm going to improve on that because you guys are rocking it. So it started early on when I played soccer. I was one of the smallest guys on the field. When I started playing competitive tennis, I was one of the smallest guys out there. So I knew early on I, I wanted to be so good in the worst way. So I knew there had to be something more than just the physical aspects or the skills and or X's and O's of anything, let alone sports. And another thing that struck me was how does the favorite lose? How does the underdog win? How do the long shots come through when the odds seem stacked against them? So it became clear to me because I, I wasn't, you know, I always blamed my mom from, she's from actually Munich, Germany. So I'm half German. Um, she's five foot one on a good day and, and maybe maybe shorter than that. And so I always used to, mom, if you were taller, you know, I would have gone further in my sports careers. But thankfully to the genes I received from her, I learned the world of psychology and sports psychology and realized that there had to be something more. So that's really what kindled for my mind to be geared towards looking behind or beyond just the sports skill and the physical attributes. Mm, awesome. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about your own athletic performance and what has, you know, like discovering the fact that, yes, you can still physically, you know, like not have all of the gifted attributes, but you can still work your way up there. Um, you know, like what were you able to accomplish once you've figured out that, you know what, just because I'm one of the smallest guys out there. I'm not as limited. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm about 10,000 words away from finishing my first book. Um, it's called The Peak Performance Lens. I'm about 30,000 words in. I've got 10 to go to where I, I think I, I want it to be um, to help change the world in, in some small way. But another one I want to, I, I've started rough drafting an outline. It's called The Underdog. and my accomplishments are, are humble compared to the underdogs that inspire us. But I feel like I've been an underdog in really everything that I've done. And time and time again, um, the underdog comes through. So first of all, was my soccer experience when I was young. Again, being one of the three smallest guys on our team. Um, we went to Europe when we were in the 12 and unders, played in multiple countries and we came back with our tails between our legs after being the state champions in Arizona and the region champions in the Western United States. We're thinking, okay, we either shouldn't ever leave again, or if we do, we need to get a lot better. And so our coach was kind of ahead of his time back in the middle of the, the 80s to bring on a consultant and a performance coach with our team. And he wasn't using really any hard science other than he was just very motivating and just, you know, very encouraging and just 
you know, led us to believe that anybody could do it. And, and you know, if we worked hard, if we put in deep practice, and if we believed in ourselves, um, in ourselves, then we would have a chance. And two years later, we went back to Europe and we were unofficially, because they didn't have official rankings, but we were number one in the world in the 14 and unders, a team from Phoenix, Arizona. We played, we won the, the English Cup in, in Southern England. We won the uh, Dana Cup in Denmark. We took third place in Sweden. Those were the three major events. And so, because we won two out of the three major events, we were dubbed as the best team in the world. So that was the first pretty, you know, shocking thing. You know, we, we thought we could do it, but we still weren't sure we could do it. And then I transitioned into tennis at a pretty late stage. My first sanctioned tournament was when I was 16 years old. And fast forward to 1989, and I was playing, that was three years later, I was playing Division One tennis at Arizona State University. And nobody that I was playing with or against had started their first junior tournament at 16 years old. It was at eight and unders or 10 and unders or 12 and unders. So I dealt with, you know, the imposter syndrome quite frequently. You know, it was a, a dream come true but at the, to be there. But at the same time, I was always thinking like, who am I kidding? Well, I just kept at it and I did transfer and finished my career at University of Arizona down in Tucson. And I was playing one, two, and three on the team. And then a year after I graduated from college, I had my first world ranking in ATP points. And I remember playing in the qualifying of a major professional tournament. And two of my former soccer teammates came up to the side of the court and their jaw had dropped. Greg, is, is that you? I, I thought you were a soccer player. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I just decided to play tennis now. So I was an underdog there. You know, I was an underdog going back to school when I was in my 40s, when I had, you know, an acre and a quarter to take care of with our pool, our court, our horses, our two dogs, our cat, three children, you know, wanting to make sure that my marriage stays strong and my kids don't forget who I am. And, oh, yeah, coaching the college tennis team as well. That was also a very stacked against me uh, underdog scenario. So that's sorry for the long-winded answer, but like now I seek those things out. Now, although my preference might be because of our internal programming, our ego would like for things to be easy, it takes me milliseconds to flip the switch into this is only one more challenge on the list that only gives me a chance to get better. And, you know, whether I can get the outcome that I want or not, I'm going to be somewhere between here and there after this attempt, and I'm going to be better for it. Mm, this is so good. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, it's like when you set a really big goal, like we talked about 10x goals, you set a really big goal, even if you fall short, you still made it a lot further than you would have had you set a small target or not set one at all. Yeah. 100%, 100%. It's, it's so easy to not set that big goal because you're intimidated by it. Or again, you, you don't have belief or you're thinking, who am I kidding? And so you just don't even attempt it in the first place. And weeks, months, a year goes by and you're the same you know, piece of crud as you were when you started. But if you set that major goal, exactly. I mean, you're going to be somewhere between here and there. And, and that's darn good. Sarit, I did a little cyber stalking. And you had quite the, ten the college tennis career yourself. You had a pretty strong winning record there at Drew University. 
Thank I was, you. I was impressed. Thank you. He went that's cyber that, stalker. That, that's oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's and awesome. And you're a lefty. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know whether to be impressed or creeped out. Like, I'm gonna choose impressed. Anybody <laughs> with a tennis flair would understand our conversation right now. Anybody who's not as far like, what the heck is going on? You know, from from one coach to another, there is something that I would love to ask you that's a complete side question, but it seems as if your soccer coach had like a huge part in your own trajectory because he believed in you and in your team so much. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, achieving anything great in life, right? Like you've been an underdog, like what does somebody else, what does somebody else's belief in you and, you know, just like showering that on you has to do with your actual performance when it comes down to it. it it's, it's massive. It's huge for sure. And, you know, when you can get that right coach, that right partner, that right teammate, the right peers around you, then, then obviously you use the word trajectory. That's a great word. We have a chance for our trajectory to be much greater. But what I'm finding out, though, is like the whole point of that, of that support, of that leader, that coach, that supporter that believes in you. The whole point is so that transfers to you mm-hmm. and you believe in yourself because ultimately you can't do it for anybody else. Ultimately, as much as I believe in my students, unless I can somehow transplant that into them and, the, and, and help that transfer over to their own mind, it's not going to work. So if you have that, it's, it's huge in kindling this flame um the spark into the flame but to turn it into a flame it does have to be with the person Mm -hmm. so if you have that you just have a a great advantage over somebody who doesn't yeah so i think i know what your response is going to be but i'm going to ask it anyways just to cultivate some thoughts for the audience but what do you think comes first self-belief or performance that's a great question and where we met some weeks back um, in Scottsdale, um, that was the major point of my discussion. And, you know, your title hits the nail on the head. The truth about confidence mistake, and it's an easy mistake to make. So no one's, uh, there's no judgment. No one's a lesser person for making this, this mistake. It's really common. But all too often we wait for performance to have the self belief go back to my coach that you uh, eloquently mentioned mentioned having this belief in us where did this belief come from that he had in us we came back with our tails between yeah. our eyes in that first stint in europe we were we had stage fright we were nervous and we didn't perform yet he still had this uncanny belief in us that he was able to transfer in enough of us to where it caught fire and transcended through the whole team. So where did that come from? So I think the answer to your question, and it's my quest to prove this theory correct, and I already have plenty of case studies and anecdotal evidence that it is the truth, is we create the self-belief ourselves regardless of the performance. Yeah. 
and then the performance comes afterwards. Ah, oh, you guys, this is so good. And that's why I was like, I had to end to ask this question just because we're about to talk about, you know, peak performance and like belief is you, it has to come from within you. And over time you perform because of that. It's uh, not, go ahead. There's, so I'm thinking about the movie, The Santa Claus. And when Tim Allen is at the North Pole and he's talking to the elf and he's like in disbelief of where he's at the North Pole and all this stuff. And he's like, you know, talking about you need to see it to believe it. And that's like a very common phrase is like, I need to see it to believe it. But so often when it comes to human performance, we have to believe it so that we can see it. And Mm -hmm. when leave it, then we take the action to prove to ourselves that it is the truth. But we're waiting. So many people just wait until they see something that they're not going to see because they don't believe. And then it's like this just forever waiting game. So, you know, for, for anybody listening, it's like, believe it first so that you are able to see it. Yeah. I love that. I've often thought about that movie. I think, I think about the, uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's Elf. But I've, same, same deal. The the Santa meter, the plaza meter, oh, yeah. where yeah. look at he, the, the sleigh can't fly unless enough of us believe. Yeah. And it sounds ridiculous. But what do we have to what do we have to lose? Right. What do we have to lose to try to be optimistic, to believe in ourselves? Why would we not sign up for that? And then you do, and, and then you you feel it. The, you have momentum and you become a, a person, a version of yourself that you never thought could be simply because you decided that I will start believing. So yeah, that's a perfect analogy. I love that. So I would love to know what are some practices that maybe you even practice that, you know, with your own clients and students Mm -hmm. that help them to improve their belief and confidence in themselves? Because here's the thing, let's say, you know, if you're coaching a tennis player, like, Yes, you're going to train them leading up to that moment. But when they're on court, it's them versus the opponent. Right. You know, so like what practices do you go over in order to, you know, like once it's game time to help them perform? Great question. I have concrete answers for you. So hopefully, hopefully your audience is listening closely, taking some notes. Watch it again before we I give you that answer just to create some suspension suspense to sum up the the under the lack of understanding that people have of confidence and what's first the chicken or the egg the performance or the confidence self belief i overheard this conversation um with a coach and the father of a competitive youth athlete it was a tennis player it's such a conundrum that aaron was just talking about like we're waiting we're waiting we're waiting so the parent approaches the coach he says coach my son, he, he's just, he's playing so much better. He's practicing so much better. He's acquiring so many more skills, but he just can't get that big win. He just hasn't had that breakthrough. Other players that he's practicing with, uh, he's just as good at, but they're, they're getting those wins. Uh, their ranking is higher. Their career's taking off. What is my son missing? He just seems right there. And the coach with confidence, speaking of, says, oh, that's easy. And the parent was so delighted to and relieved that, oh, the coach has an answer. He said, yeah, he just needs confidence. When he gets that confidence, he's going to have the breakthrough. And the parent was, you know, I thought that might, might be it. 
okay, yeah, that makes sense. Coaches, yeah, see, get confidence, you get the win, you get the breakthrough. So the parent is about satisfied with the conversations, but then, oh, well, then one more important question. How is my son going to acquire the confidence? And the coach says, oh, that's easy too. Now the parent's a little perplexed, like, oh, really? Like, what's that? And he said, well, when your son just gets that big win and has that big breakthrough, he'll get his confidence. <laughs> what? You said he needed the, the confidence to get the win, but now you said he needs the win. Huh? That's pretty much the state of things. It's a conundrum that everybody is in. So here's the answer to your question. Waiting for that performance, waiting for that big win, for that result, waiting for something that makes you feel like you're ready to get fit or ready to get stronger or change your habits. This is waiting for something and depending on something that's out of our control. And that's wherein lies most of the torment that a human being could live in is relying too heavily, especially with primarily on things out of our control, the compliment we may or may not get, the look that we may or may not get, the win that we may or may not get, the performance that we may or may not get. There are too many variables out of our control when it comes to outcomes and results. And that causes frustration because it's here one day and it's gone the next. Like yesterday, I felt good. Today, I didn't. Yesterday, I performed well. Today, I didn't. It almost makes you think that I don't even want to perform well anymore because when I have that one in 20 days that I perform well, now every other day I'm trying to live up to that standard and I just can't get there and it's frustrating. So the shift that needs to be made for somebody to start building that self-belief and that confidence is you have to rely on and focus on and develop things that are in our control. That's empowering. Now we don't feel like a victim. We feel like we have some say and control over our, over our lives. What are those things that are in our control? What I use for my clients, because it's very easily remembered, and it's a super fun acronym, because they often literally want to be this as well, as figuratively, but we focus on the beast. B-E-A-S-T. These are incredibly important and empowering virtues for humans that are in our control that when you focus on them and devote time on them and develop them with conscious, deep effort, you will, you will benefit, you will gain, you will see things change in a major way, so much so that you almost don't turn back. You'll have bad days. Sure, we can take it in the chin. That's life, but it's temporary. It's short term and you keep going. So number one, the B, that's our body language. I mean, we've all seen, forgive me for forgetting the, the author of that TED talk and the power position. Um, she was brilliant when she presented that presentation on the body language, but there's plenty of it out there for anybody to read up on it or watch up on it. But our own body language is in our control. And why that's so important is because we live in it. We live in our body. So the way we carry ourselves is going to have a strong influence on the chemistry in our brain and our mental state. So if we're constantly withdrawn and our shoulders are over and we're looking down, then 
don't be surprised if your mental state follows. If we're low on energy, if we don't have good posture, if uh, we're a slow mover and okay, sleep and nutrition, these are all massively important things. But even if you don't have that, if you've developed your body language, you can still benefit from your practiced body language and posture and technique. So that's number one. Besides the fact that we live in our body and we're the one that's most directly impacted by our own body language is it changes how the world responds to us as well on the outside. And think of the person who looks closed and withdrawn or the person who's looking down or the person who doesn't smile. Are you going to engage with them? It takes a a pretty strong-willed and special person to engage with that person. Most people will not. Um, you're not going to get the smile back. You're not going to get the the small talk or the deep conversation back. And then it just makes you feel smaller and smaller as the day or the week or your life goes on. So for those two main reasons, internally and externally, people will benefit greatly by being aware of and improving on their body language in looking friendly and in looking confident, whether we feel it on the inside or not. If you start looking like it, you guys know that phrase, right? The fake it till you make it. Then the physiology and the chemistry in our, our mind will follow. So that's the starting point, body language. We prefer, we prefer uh, be it till you believe it. I like it. Be it till you believe but it. But it's not fake. We're not faking anything. I don't like the fake part of that saying. The meaning behind it is what's important, but I like what you've done to that. Be it until you believe it. Yes. No, that's how we one. And, you know, take an inventory of your body language and not just a general average because uh, an average of body language for a day or a week is not revealing. You have to think of each scenario case by case. Well, I have good body language with when I'm with Aaron and Sarit. Well, yeah, that's easy because of them. But do you have good body language when you're with somebody else? when you're with your children or when you're with your coworkers or when you're with your boss or with your siblings or with your parents. So take an inventory of where your body language is strong and where it is weak and take the test. Prove me wrong. Where you found that it has been weak, just change the body language in those contexts. Do it a few times and then you can get back to me and let me know how those interactions have been. Have they been the same, better, or worse? And in every case so far with all of my clients, whether they're athletes or musicians or performers or business people, um, they can't wait to run back to the office or pick up the phone or send the text like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Well, I think that you got everybody just like sitting up straighter with just the B. Mm. I guarantee everybody was like, how oh, I better sit up. <laughs> so something something that we often talk so, about is mm. is the concept of auditing your environment. Mm. And you know, I want to think about it just like a little bit deeper. Because, you know, we're all energetic and energetical beings, whether we're aware of it or not. And, you know, I'm just thinking about that from a standpoint of this is exactly why, you know, 
when it comes to drainers in our lives, we need to eliminate them because how does how does being around a drainer actually affect your body language when you go to another conversation? Hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. It well it requires more skill. It requires more master masterful mental skills by you. And until that happens, those drainers will derail you. Those yeah. those drainers will set you back. Now the beauty of this is when you have become the master of the beast and of your body language, then the drainers kind of bounce off of you. The the drainers don't drain so much, but that's the the PhD level that we're shooting for. So until then, the less exposure we have to them, the better we're going to be. And the more exposure we have to other like-minded people, the better it's going to be. But that's ultimately the goal because we can't avoid drainers in our life. They could be the person that has road rage next to us or in front of us in the car. It could be the person in the supermarket that cuts us off or, or you know, gives us looks. Um, it could be the, the seemingly dream job that we finally got, but then there's a coworker that is uh, shattering our dream because we're not able to manage that situation. Whereas if we are, it is our dream job, regardless of who's working in the next office or next cubicle. So that is ultimately the goal, but that's certainly high level and being aware of, of, like you said, auditing the environment and putting as many pieces in place that will give you your best chance to develop um, and succeed is very important. Do you think that somebody can be immersed in a negative environment and like have great body language unless they're hyper aware and have been practicing that for years? No, that's exactly what they need. They need to be hyper aware and they need to have practiced it literally for, for years. Um, I mean, per, perhaps six to nine months um, will give you a, a, a chance, um, depending on how much deep work you've done in that period. Um, right. But again, but that's that's what I want for my students. Um, people laugh and roll their eyes until they might witness it with their own eyes. But like mm -hmm. I haven't had a bad tennis match in you know, three decades, over 25 years. And they're like, what are you talking about? How is that even possible? Now, we I have to define that because the lay person is going to say, what, you haven't lost in 25 years? No, I didn't say I haven't lost. I said, I haven't had a bad tennis match. I haven't had a bad experience. I haven't gone out there and not learned something and not felt good about the, the situation, whether I'm playing somebody who's a complete poor sport, whether I'm playing somebody who's using gamesmanship and, and, and negative psychological tactics to try to get an advantage, or whether I was injured, or whether I was sick, or whether I didn't get sleep the night before. None of that matters. It's not going to influence my experience once I get out there because I have trained myself in that way. Here's an example. Me and my wife were sitting in the oncologist's office and the oncologist came out of reviewing the scans of my 12 year old daughter's bones. And he said, we're going to have to do a biopsy to rule out bone cancer because the lesions in the two areas of your daughter's bones are presenting as bone cancer. And so in milliseconds, you know, the first and seemingly normal and natural response would be to collapse to my knees and 
hug my wife and weep and say, why me? Why her? This isn't fair. But in milliseconds, I thought the lesion was in her right arm. She's right-handed. I'm thinking, okay, she might lose that arm to save her. Um, I'll teach her to play tennis left-handed and her and I will play mixed doubles and we'll try to win the father-daughter U.S. Open Championships. You were saying, doctor, what do we need to do? So through, through training, that's how one can respond. I mean, somebody has to be the person you can go to when a loved one is ill or we lose somebody or we lose a job. Like, why not it be all of us? So, yeah, after training, after deep work, you can, you can face anything. That's the goal. So let's get at it. I love it. Mm, so good. Hey, our heart is with your whole family. Thank you. Yeah. She did not have bone cancer and she got diagnosed with something called CRMO which is a diagnosis out of process of elimination. And after my wife, oh. her second time as first team, what do you want to Hey, Greg, I don't know if, you, if like the last minute, everything that you said got cut off. We're just bringing you a very special episode. There we go. You're back. Sorry about that. That's okay. There was uh, you. Okay, there was suspense. So, can you repeat <laughs> everything that you said over the last minute? Process of elimination. Well, um, I appreciate you guys. Um, you said you were with me and my family, and I was just giving you a happy ending to that story. In that, our daughter has a clean bill of health. Um, she was diagnosed with um, chronic multifocal something or other, and. Um, we took her off the medication that was prescribed and changed her diet. And over the course of about 18 month, months, all of the symptoms went away. And a month ago for the second time, she received first team all conference um, for the WAC the tennis player. So, so good. good go. She's good to go. And there was, there was a, so what, what was it? You know, was it the diet? Was it the positive thing? I'm not allowed to dilute again. Um, maybe it's a combination of, of everything, but, um, yeah. we'll never not try to, to use the power of positivity. Of course. Gosh. What do you have to lose? You know, something that we always say is you are what you eat and your thoughts are things that you consume as well. Whether you consume it through your mouth, your ears, your eyes, it's all equally as important. Um, all right. So we went over B. Let's. Let's talk about E. What does E stand for? That's effort. And, you know, effort is in our control. How much you give is solely up to you. Um, nobody can, can make you put that effort in. Now, you can have an uh, authoritarian or command-style coach that is screaming in your ear and cracking the whip and scaring you into performance. Um, but sadly... That's not sustainable. It doesn't last. And it comes with harsh casualties of war and consequences. So there's a lot of parents, there's a lot of coaches out there that do make the mistake of, of leading that way because they get results um, and they're misled by the immediate results. Um, but 
um, medium and long term, it's just not the way to go. So each individual needs to take responsibility for the effort that they give. Some days we're going to be tired. Some days uh, we're not going to feel well. We'll be under the weather. Um, for whatever reason, our, our diet was disrupted the way we like to eat because we were traveling on the road. to give less effort because things didn't work out the way I hoped they were. But that's only for somebody who hasn't developed that skill, who hasn't exposed that muscle to reps of always trying to give their best. So the mistake that people make is that, yes, perhaps the output of your effort could vary from day to day, but it's the input that I'm after it's the same effort that you're giving from day to day, even if the outcome's different. In that, did I lose you again? For a second. Even if is the last thing we heard. I see that. Okay. Even if the week is long and the workouts have been tough, you can still give the same input. You can still give the same effort. When you do that consistently, that's how you can tap into new levels of effort that you didn't even know existed. But if the input that we give constantly varies because we have some ideal thought in our head that, well, when I get enough sleep and when I eat right and when I feel good in the morning, then I'll give all I have. But if those things aren't in line, then I need to conserve and I need to save and I need to put the governor on it. And I need to make sure I can last the rest of the workout or the day. Well, now you're practicing giving less than your best. And you're getting good at tempering and not giving enough. And you'll never experience what it's like to continue to reach new levels of ability. You don't have to agree with everything that David Goggins stands for. If anybody's familiar with the former Navy Steel who wrote the book, can't hurt me. Um, there's many people that might think he's taken some things too far, but the point I'm at is that he believes that the natural governor that was put on our body when we were born is way too safe and conservative. And that us as human beings can do so much more than we think. So that's the E. The E, it's fully under your control. Mm, I love it. I don't know if you can hear us, but we're totally agreeing with what you have to say. We lost you, but I'm hopeful. Get a little sip of coffee there. Uh, what was that? What's that animal behind it? I forgot the name of it. Uh, uh, yeah. I remember that it's not a buffalo. <laughs> there he is. Um, I, you know, gotcha. I, I love what you said so much. So, you know, like we, we help our audience with weight loss, right? What we really do is we help to optimize human performance, but you know, like, because like if somebody has got a lot of weight to lose or some weight to lose, then they're not going to feel confident in themselves to achieve what they know that they're actually capable of, right? So when our people come to us, they're just like, man, like I can be so much more confident, right? And with the way that we teach weight loss, that's so different than the weight loss industry is 
we have them focus on their effort and measure their effort because for success has to be measurable. Now, the weight loss industry teaches you that, you know, like weight loss is happening only when you lose the weight. Now, what's not being talked about is that weight loss is a byproduct of all of the effort that you're putting in or not do, putting in and the consistency of that effort. I don't care how great somebody's effort was one day. I want to know what somebody's effort was for an entire month. Like if you've had a great day, okay, cool. Repeat, repeat successful actions. But just because you were great one day doesn't, doesn't mean shit. So it's like if you step on the scale the next day, you're like, I'm down two pounds. That doesn't tell us anything, right? And, and that's why I love this so, so much because we have to focus on what's within our control. Everything else is just a byproduct of what you've done, what you haven't done. And, you know, like when you focus on a byproduct and you don't measure the effort, then that what it actually leads to is insanity. And that's why so many people are frustrated because, you know, like your success will also be determined on what you focus on. And if you're focusing on the wrong things then you will always have the wrong results. That's why the effort, though, starts internally. Yeah. Like the effort goes from internal to action. Yeah. Yeah. You, so, am, I with, am I with you guys? Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say nobody could say it better than what you guys just said. That's, that's perfect. I want to make sure that we get the A, the S, and the T uh -huh. before we run mm -hmm. out of time here today. Yeah. Are we are we done in ten minutes? Yeah. So let's okay. let's go A. A. Okay. Well, I think the audience, because they know you guys, would know what the A is. It's attitude. Mm. studies at Stanford a 20 year longitudinal study longitudinal study with hundreds of Stanford graduates revealed that being optimistic and having a positive attitude was a much greater predictor of future happiness and success than IQ and you have control over your attitude yes there's there's many other studies that are, are flooding in now um, that are measuring Attitude, attitude is rising to the top. Optimists live longer than pessimists. I want to sign up for that. I'll think positive. You have more friends. You have more support. You have more resources. You have the wonderful feeling of giving to others um, when you have this attitude. So the question that I ask my clients often um, to, to put this on their note card that they keep with them um, when they review is, if everybody had my attitude right now, what would this room be like? What would my like? What would my team be like? What would this gym be like? What would this world be like right now if everybody had your attitude? And if the answer would be dismal and miserable, I hope that's a mm -hmm. that's such a good question. Uh -huh. Okay, we're gonna get back. It's a skill. It's a skill. It's in your control. Practice it. Practice it. Practice it. How can you not have confidence and self belief if your body language isn't deeply practiced on a regular basis? If your effort isn't consistently given? If your attitude isn't consistently above average, how could you not have confidence in any room that you know I'm going to have good body language? I do know I'm going to have good, good effort and I do know I'm going to have a great attitude. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. We'll find out when it gets here, but I know I'll give you that. Yeah. S, okay. S is self-talk. Mm. Self-talk is the driving force behind a human's ability 
to oh right a cliffhanger is this because you guys have millions of people watching i maybe a whole 36 <laughs> it's a, could, be, it's could be the arizona heat but i mean it's totally fine because it's outside of your control and our control so it is what it is <laughs> there you go she's practicing what she preaches we got to go back though we got to go back self-talk so, self-talk yeah can can you repeat what you said about self-talk yes i will because it's one of the most important things they'll hear today and that is self-talk is the driving force behind the ability of a human being to program their brain mm. that's how it gets done how else humans have thousands upon thousands of thoughts in a day and that makes us who we are because the thought leads to an emotion and an emotion leads to an action mm -hmm. and that action be no action that that action can be withdrawal or that action can be so i think you keep losing me because i see the little circle on my screen mm -hmm. yeah yeah the the last thing that we heard is so 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 <laughs> how to solve problem i wonder if we take out the video if it would work better we made it out the video let's take mine out can i do that can you do that okay yeah. Okay, do you hear me? Let's wow, try it. this sounds great, let's go. Okay, so here's the question, uh, much like the question for attitude. The question is, is what you're thinking right now helpful or hurtful? And I'm not done yet. To you and those around you, is what you're thinking right now productive or counterproductive? Ooh, talk to me. And those around you, the self-talk is the driving force behind neuroplasticity. And that is the human's ability to rewire and reprogram our brain. And for most humans, they allow the environment to wire their brain. Their brains are blowing around in the wind like a tumbleweed. We have those out here in Phoenix in the desert. And some days are good, some days are bad. And so that's just how they're wired. It depends on their circumstance to how and what mental state they'll be living in that day. But when you take control of your thoughts, when you're aware of what you're thinking of, when you think about what you think about, then you can wire yourself in a positive direction to where you're going to have better body language. You're going to have a better effort. You're going to have a better attitude. So let's make sure all those work people that are in your brain with hammers and saws and nails and jackhammers that, that they're rewiring in a conscious direction towards who you want to become. That's so good. Neuroplasticity. I don't yeah. know the actual definition, but it is like the ability to manipulate and transform and, and choose the form of the way your brain operates. It, it changes the structure and function of your brain. Unbelievable that we can do this. Yeah. People think I'm just born a certain way and that's the way it is. But mm -hmm. neuroplasticity is our ability to change the structure and therefore function of our brain. So good. And the T. And, and the T. T is the team spirit. T, mm. is, T is understanding you, that, that we are a social species and we need others to survive and to thrive. We can't go it alone. And when people say, I don't need anybody, I got straight A's. 
in my degree, well, whose books did you read? Who built the institution? Who offered the classes that you took? What tools did you use to build whatever you think you did by yourself to build it? When we, when, we, when we give to others, we get back tenfold. And it's such a hurdle to cross because there's a lot of type A personalities who are used to thinking of themselves and they're ambitious and, and that's okay and that's good and they're healthy and they're hard workers. But when they finally realize that, look, that 10% that you think you can't give to others because then you'll be 10% short, you can't afford not to give it to others. You can't afford not to because when you give that to others, just how many other people that you've given any ounce of, of effort to, of care, of emotion, of help, you just don't know how it's going to come back to you and how much it's going to come back to you. There's, there's so many stories of superhuman feats that people have done because it was about something bigger than themselves. So when you want to get fit, when you want to get in shape, when you want to get the positive byproducts of losing weight, maybe just for yourself isn't enough, but maybe it's because you want to serve others better. You want to have more energy. You want to be able to help the community or help your team or help your family members. You're going to be able to do that better if you're a better version of yourself. So if you think of those things that are bigger than yourself, that just may be the motivation you needed to get you over the top. That's what the T is. Mm, so good. Team spirit. Uh, I don't know if you ever go over by minutes, but I had a... Go, a go personal, for it. Go for it. Okay. okay. My personal experience um, was when I broke my ribs on a Tuesday and I was playing a professional match in Germany on a Sunday. And when the doctor saw that I broke three ribs, he said to not play. And I wasn't going to play anyways because I was in torturous pain. I'd never broke a bone in my body and in the core, in the rib area, it's, it's kind of rough. So my team captain asked if I could go play one point and default the match. So the whole team wasn't weakened by everybody moving up in the lineup because I was the number one player. And I said, yes, I can do that for you. So I went out there, I took position one. So our positions two through six, all five of them could play in their normal positions and not have to play higher. And we would still have a chance to win. So I played my point. It was the 10 minutes of torture to get through the warm up before the match started. And after my one point, uh, I was trying to go up to shake hands and default the match and tell my opponent, I can't play. It's his win today. And I couldn't get myself to do it because I'd never quit a match in my life. And I was very perplexed. I was in excruciating pain and I knew it was futile to attempt playing a match, but I still couldn't get myself to do it. So I labored and labored mentally over, I need to quit. No, I can't quit. I don't want to quit. And finally, near the end of the first set, I was about to lose the first of two sets. I finally decided, you know what? I'm not going to quit. I'm going to stay out here for my team. I'm going to stay out here and I'm going to deal with the pain. And I'm not going to give my opponent a day off because he needs to play doubles against my team later. I don't want my team to see me wounded and on the sidelines and hurt. So I'm just going to stay out here until he beat me until the end of the match. And I lost two more games. And the most amazing thing happened is the pain went away and my focus became dialed in. It, it became clean and clear and 
my surroundings kind of disappeared and I won 12 straight games to win the next two sets and win the match in three sets. And for the life of me in those early moments after the match, I couldn't figure out what the heck had happened. And so I couldn't wait to explore that and and do a little research. And then I just found one story after another that when people thought they were at the absolute end of the road, end of the rope, into the brick wall, when it became about for something greater than themselves, in particular for others, whether it's humanity as a whole or a loved one, a spouse, a child, a team, they were able to do things never imaginable. And the beautiful thing about that is it lasts. It's not just that one time. You learn how to tap into that by genuinely being team-oriented in life, and you make the world a better place around you, even if in a small way, but, but you're the one who's experiencing the extraordinary feats because you've changed the purpose of why you're doing it. So that's the tea. So good. So good. Dr. Greg, tell us more. If the audience want to learn more about what you do, connect with you, learn from you, um, where do they find, where do they find you? They can find me at prueperformance.com. P-R-U performance.com on that website. They can read a little bit. I have areas of my pages with my speaking engagement. There's an introduction of my book. Prue or Prude? Prude. Sorry? Prue or Prude? P-R-U. Okay, perfect. P-R-U performance. And they can message me there. And I am happy to answer any questions. Um, My email is also prueperformance at gmail.com. So if anybody wants to just directly email me for any questions, I am happy to hear from anybody. That's awesome. awesome. Dr. Greg, thank you so, so much for your time today. You were incredible as always. We're going to connect afterwards and see, um, maybe we can hopefully connect in person while you're coming to Florida. Yeah, that sounds fun. Thanks for having me. You guys are the best. Um, I love what you guys are doing for your community and um, I hope it continues to grow because we need more people like you guys out there. You can bet it will. And we're creating an army of more of us, hopefully, but in their own unique, beautiful ways. So you are contributing. So thank you for that. Um, and we'll, we'll be in touch till the next time. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Dr. Greg, and for those of you guys who are listening to us live, thank you so much for tuning in today. We know that that definitely 10x the value that you were expecting to get today. So once again, Dr. Greg, thank you so much. Hey, it's 4th of July weekend. So whatever it is that you're doing, just remember, stay responsible. You know, be a true representation of freedom. We hope that you enjoy your weekend, and we will catch you guys back on Monday. Have a beautiful weekend, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. See ya. See ya. Thank you. Bye, Greg. Thank you for listening to Espresso with Erin and Suri. On your way out, be sure to check out our website, erinandsuri.com, to keep up to date with what we have going on and maybe grab some free stuff.
And if you feel so inclined, hop on over to leave us a five-star review, wink, wink. And remember, life is more fun when you subscribe to Aaron and Sarit.